Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. On Friday, October 29th, one of our academic fellows, Dr. Matthew Berninger, delivered the lecture, Call to Freedom, Healing One Day at a Time. As you will soon hear from his own mouth, it was an excellent and precious talk. Once again, UT students who gathered at the University Catholic Center for this talk had the opportunity to listen to a scholar who did not only enrich their intellects, but help them dive a little deeper into their own lives, focusing on their well-being as whole persons. This is what we hope you will all be able to do while tuning in, getting your coffee, or enjoying your morning walk. Dr. Berninger, as mentioned, is one of our academic fellows, which is one more reason to donate to AI and support their work. He is assistant professor of psychology at Francisco University of Steubenville. He received his uh, psychology um, master in clinical psychology from Baylor University, as well as an MA in theology from Evermaria University. His research interests lie generally in psychology of religion. In particular, he is interested in how churches perceive and address mental illness, God attachment, religious and spiritual struggles, clinical disorders, and implicit and explicit attitudes toward God. His current research includes looking at the relationship between religious spiritual struggles and well-being in adolescence, the effects of perceived parenting style on religious spiritual struggles, and comparing the predictive validity of implicit and explicit attitudes toward God on various outcome variables. When not teaching or researching, he enjoys fishing and hiking in the mountains of Pennsylvania with his family and his newborn child. Enjoy this episode, share it with your friends, and remember to support the Austin Institute. Would you guys, um, it's going to be an intimate affair tonight, and so would you guys move up? I know this is, it feels so, if you're, if you're concerned about health or COVID, or you can stay in the back, but for those who aren't, if you move up, um, part of it is uh, my voice. Since I got off the plane in Texas, my voice dropped like two octaves. Like this is not my normal voice. Um, so you're getting a, a talk on healing tonight from like a jazz singer or from... <laughs> from Bane, from Batman, right? Um, okay, so we're gonna talk about healing tonight. We're gonna talk about healing, healing our life's wounds. And I wanna leave a lot of time for Q&A, because I think that's really exciting and where a lot of the great stuff happens, but <clears throat> I wanna start with this. I wanna start with the end. I wanna start with the end. I wanna give you the big secret here. You're the problem. You are absolutely the problem. And that is the good news. Because if you're the problem, then there's a solution. But if life's the problem, if the problem is we gotta get life to be the way we want it to be, you're in trouble. If the problem is other people, I just have to get my kids to act the way I want them to act, and then I'll be happy, then I'll be okay, then I won't feel so anxious, I won't feel so depressed, I won't so... If you try to get my two-year-old, my five-year-old, my nine-year-old, to act the way I want them to act. So did you guys know, um, did you guys know Scott Hahn? You familiar with Scott Hahn? Okay. So Scott Hahn, he's this sort of like Catholic celebrity, whatever that means, right? Um, and he goes to our church. He teaches at my university. He goes to our church. I remember the first time we walked into Mass and I saw Scott Hahn, I thought, oh my gosh, it's Scott Hahn. Right? I've seen that guy in EWTN. <laughs> 
And I walk in and I have this slew of kids and we sit down and my nine-year-old, right, is very fidgety. So he starts shaking, he's rocking, right? And I'm going, Scott Hahn's gonna think that we're not like a holy family. You know what I mean? He's sitting back there and I'm going, oh my gosh. So I'm, Oliver, stop it. Knock that off, right? So you do the parent thing where you bring all of the entire force of your being to the tip of your lips. So help me God, I will take away everything you love if you don't hold still, right? He's five, That's, I mean, like, he's a five-year-old. He can't do any, he's, right? And so my, my nine-year-old daughter at the time, she's playing with their hair, and I'm like, Amelia, fold your hands. Scott Hahn is watching, right? Look, my point is this. If you need to get people to act the way you want them to act in order for you to be happy, you're in trouble. Life and the people in it will rarely act and behave the way you want them to or think you need them to. If that's the problem, you're gonna be miserable and hurt for the rest of your life. But the good news is it's not. You're the problem. And we're gonna talk about that today. But above and beyond the fact that you're the problem, here's what I want you to hear if I forget to say it. That God is utterly obsessed with your liberation. God is utterly obsessed with your freedom. Okay. These are, I've just handpicked a couple of sort of the healing passages from Scripture, but He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the punishment that made us whole. By His bruises we were healed. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. We hear Jeremiah say, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I've come to call the righteous. Not the righteous, but sinners. And we have this beautiful quote from St. Francis, not St. Francis, Pope Francis. <laughs> and when she says, I see the church as a field hospital. It's useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Heal the wounds. Heal the wounds. Healing is so important, y'all, because it's incredibly hard to hear God's voice. It's incredibly hard to see the will of God in your life when you view life through the lens of your hurts and your wounds. When all of those other voices that come out of our wounds are spinning in our head, you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, nobody will love you. Look at you, how could, you're not, you're not good enough, you're not valuable, you're not. When those voices are chattering in our minds, it's incredibly hard to hear the voice of God. We must heal the wounds. Because then we can begin to see accurately what the Lord wants for our life. We can begin to hear the Lord's voice in our life. But healing is so crucial, it's so fundamental. And it's deeply embedded, deeply, 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 deeply embedded in the Lord's plan from us. From the very beginning, Right? right after Adam and Eve's sin, we have what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first good news. Well, what could possibly be the good news? Adam and Eve have just sinned. They've just been kicked out of the garden. 
And the, proto, the proto-evangelium, the first good news, is God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He says, I'm going to take care of this. He's utterly obsessed with our liberation. And we see this over and over throughout the Old Testament. He brings the Egyptians out of slavery. He's constantly bringing his people out of bondage. The bondage of other nations and the bondage to their own sinfulness. And finally, in Christ, we have the ultimate liberation. Right? The ultimate wound, the deepest wound we have, fundamentally, is original sin. It's a wound that cuts to the very heart of the human person. We are born into this world separated from God. That is the deepest wound. And through our baptism, right, through our baptism, that wound is healed. We're given, we're given divine life within us. We become participants in the divine life. But I want to talk tonight more about sort of the emotional and psychological wounds that sort of flow out of and the effects of original sin, if you will. So look, we have a problem in the church, and this is the problem. The problem is most of us are fakers. We're pretending. There's a universal cover-up going on. If I looked at your, do you, how many of you guys have Instagram? Raise your hands if you have Instagram. Seriously, raise your hands high. Don't be, don't be ashamed. If you're just raise your hand. yeah, okay, okay. I bet if I went on your Instagram page, I would see these beautiful manicured photos, right? Like, right? <laughs> Girls night in UT, right? You and the boy, you're getting a pump on in the gym, like, you know? Looking like life is great. I had a, we had a moment that, that captures what I'm talking about here. I was, we were living in Houston, which is, um, I think it's like hell on earth, actually. <laughs> It's so hot, it's so humid, everything is so far away, it's so expensive. Okay, I'm living in, in Houston, it's Easter time. My wife is uh, eight months pregnant, so we have three kids, she's pregnant with the fourth. And the Bruninger family, we are not a morning people. My people are not morning people, right? And so it was Easter morning, we wake up, it's slow going, we're trying to get out the door to 11 o'clock mass, we go to um, this parish that's 45 minutes away. Everything's 45 minutes away in Houston, right? We go to this parish, so we have to leave at like, you know, some ungodly hour. And I'm like, guys, guys, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. Somebody help, put the baby shoes on. Who's got the, Oliver, Oliver, stop touching, right? Oliver's the fidgety one. Oliver, stop touching that, right? Asher, come, we can't eat chocolate. Buddy, there's a fast, you have to fast before, okay. So I'm feeling rushed. So, babe. You, you, can't put on, you can't try another outfit on. That outfit's fine, right? <laughs> never. Gentlemen, never, <laughs> ever comment on what your wife is wearing as she's getting ready if she's eight months pregnant and you're trying to get out, the, right? Oh, oh, you think this is easy? You think this is easy? Nothing, right? I'm like, oh, God. So I've stepped in this, right? It's, it's chaos. We get out the door. I'm going, guys. Let's go get in a van. So now I'm getting short with people. I'm feeling, pr- let's go get in the van. Stop in the van now. And my wife goes, we need an Easter picture. I'm like, babe, we don't have time for an Easter picture. She was like, we need a picture. Like, oh my gosh, okay, everybody, come on, get up against the tree. So they're getting up against the tree. I'm setting the camera up on the, fo- on the, on the, the windows to the car. 
right? I hit the timer, I run over, smile, right? We smile, I check it out, Oliver's eyes are closed. I'm like, child, if you don't get this next one right, right, you're not sleeping here tonight, right? Go back, hit it, come back, smile, click. And it was like the stars aligned. It was, it was a fantastic picture, right? The kids are all smiling, they're snuggled in against us. I got my arm around my wife, the sunlight's hitting her belly. It's like, and so on the way to Mass, she puts it on Facebook. We go to Mass, Mass was beautiful, we get out of Mass. I open up Facebook, the picture's got like 250 likes, right? Which for the Bruningers is a lot. I don't know, I don't know what kind of numbers y'all are pushing, but for us that's a lot, right? Beautiful family, so radiant, such holiness, right? All these comments of people. Guys, like I was screaming at my kids. <laughs> like half a second before the picture was taken. My point with all of this is we oftentimes find ourselves comparing how we feel on the inside to how others look on the outside. And the problem with the church, one of the problems with the church is we are deeply, deeply, deeply hurt and wounded. We're in pain, but most of us walk around as if we're fine. We walk around as if everything's good. We walk around like we're not carrying deep wounds and hurts and insecurities and fears within us. And because of that universal cover-up, because we're pretending that we're not hurt, we oftentimes serve as a barrier to our own healing. And why do we pretend? Well, sometimes we pretend because the thought of actually changing sounds painful. The thought of looking at ourselves and doing that work sounds painful and arduous. Other times we don't change because we don't actually know that we're wounded. We, we've adopted a personality, a way of being, that we say, this is just me, right? just who I am. And our entire personality is actually a response to our hurts and wounds. So we may not be aware that we're actually hurt or wounded. A third reason is because I think many of us intuit, rightfully, that the church is the place of healing. We think to ourselves that in this church, in these sacraments, I can be healed. And so we come. We come to the sacrament. And we receive the Eucharist. And we're still hurt and wounded. And we go to confession and we confess and we're still wounded. Week after week, year after year, we avail ourselves of the sacraments and we don't seem much better than we did when we started. And so we pretend like we're better. We pretend like we're okay. Because it's hard, it's embarrassing to say, hey guys, I keep going to the Eucharist. Anyone else not getting any benefit out of the Eucharist? That's a tough one to say out loud, right? Hey guys, um, I'm gripped by fear and anxiety. I'm having panic attacks. Go to the Eucharist. Nothing's happening. Anyone else in here? Nobody says that, right? We just pretend like we're doing well. How you doing? Oh, good. Praise God. Bless you, right? We pretend. How do we get hurt? How do we get wounded? You were created to be unconditionally loved. You were created by a God who is in his very nature love. Deus caritas as God is love. And you were created in the image and likeness of a God who is love. You were created to receive love and to give love. And so our wounds arise 
when we fail to be loved the way we were created to be loved. That's what a wound is. A wound is failing to be loved the way we were created to be loved. Or being blocked from loving others the way we're created to love others. But our wounds arise from a failure of love. Okay, so what is love? Who can tell me what love is? A man in the pink shirt. Selflessness, okay. Give me more than that. So I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna take that definition, I'm gonna go home tomorrow to my kids, right? And I'm gonna love them. Selflessness, what's that mean? Okay, putting their needs before mine, putting their well-being before mine, okay. What do they need? What do my kids need? Okay. Like what? Food, shelter. Love. Oh, ah, tricky. Okay, yeah, so certainly some part of love is providing for the well-being, the goods, the needs of my kids. The question is, yeah, what are those needs? They need food, they need shelter, yeah, okay. Right now, if that's the definition, I'm doing awesome because they have food, they have shelter, right? What else? It's sacrificial, okay. That's true. These are all marks of love. There's sort of a standard definition. You guys know this, have you heard this sort of standard Catholic definition of love? Do you know it? To love is to will the good of the other person, right? And, and part of that is something like wanting to meet their needs, right? Their genuine need. To will the good of the other person. That is, in my mind, a wonderfully unhelpful definition. <laughs> right? because it doesn't tell me what those goods are, right? What are those goods? Certainly food, shelter. So I've come up with this little diagram, right? This helpful little diagram. So look, what does it mean to be loved? To be loved is to will the good of the other, but we have to know what those goods that we are made for are. So I've made, the, I call them the six S's because alliteration helps people remember things. So the six S's. And so you're right, what was your name by the way? Jared, Jared was right. I, I, called it, I put this under somatic stuff. So somatic meaning like stuff of the body. Food, shelter, clothing, right? These are goods that we need. To be loved means that I provide these goods of the body for my kids. Sleep, leisure, things that contribute to their bodily health, things that help them feel rested and restored. So that's certainly one level of goods that we were created to receive and that we were created to give others. Security, I think, is another good that you were created for. You're meant to have physical security, emotional security, and interpersonal security. You should feel like your body is safe. It's one of the goods. And if somebody violates that, if somebody hurts or harms your body, okay, they fail to love you, they fail to to desire what's good for you. And in doing so, they wound you. If somebody doesn't give you emotional security, if every time my kids mess up, they think that I'm gonna come down on them, hit them, hurt them, harm them, say something mean, say something, if they don't, if they don't feel emotionally safe, it's a wound. To will their good is to want them to feel emotionally safe. 
Self-esteem. Another good that you were created to receive. You are created in the image and likeness of God. You are unique, irrepeatable, and irreplaceable. You have dignity. And because you have this dignity, you have a desire to be esteemed, to be recognized, to be valued. And when somebody fails to value you the way you're created to be valued, when they fail to show you the esteem that, that's deep within you because of your dignity, it's a wound. So when somebody is dismissive, these are little things, little things, but right, when somebody walks by you and they give you just that like dismissive look, like, ah, it hurts, right? Ooh, why does it hurt? Because that's not how we're made to be looked at. We're made to be looked at with dignity, with respect, with value. And so these, it might be a small wound, but it's a wound nonetheless. Sense of connection. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who is in his very nature, a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You were made for relationship with others. Theologically, this is, this is right, repeated over and over. It's like the premise of the theology of the body, for those of you that are familiar with, it, with JP2's theology of the body. But biologically, it's also stamped deep within you. You're made for communion with others. We want friendship. We want bonds with family. We want sexual intimacy. We want connection with people we meet. When, this is why I think divorce is such a wound, because it violates our sense of connection. We want to feel connected to mom and dad. Fundamental. And when dad leaves or mom leaves or the family gets fragmented, it breaks that deep, good that we were created to experience. Self-excellence. We want to be great at things. We want to be really good at things. We want to be excellent. This is what virtue is, right? Virtue is excellence in the powers of the soul. We are created to, have vir to be virtuous. And in being virtuous, that's where our happiness is. But virtue is about excellence, y'all. We want to be excellent. We want, to, be, we want to, to approach a task and be good at it. And when somebody gets in the way of that, when life gets in the way of that, when somebody fails to recognize that in us, that's a wound. Lastly, self-transcendence. Sense of higher meaning and purpose, connection with the divine. When that is thwarted, when that is, when that is, when, when we're not, when we don't experience a deep sense of purpose or meaning or connection with the divine, uh, I put, I also put things like justice up here, things that go beyond us. When my sense of justice is violated, right, it harms, it's a wound. So, so to, to love is to will the good of the other. What are the goods that we should want for other people? These things. I should want you to have adequate food, shelter, bodily autonomy, emotional safety. I want you to feel connected to people. I want you to feel excellent. I want you to feel valued. I want you to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And there's all sorts of ways that I can fail to want those things for you or get in the way of you experiencing them that hurt. So, but I think each one of the wounds, if you think about your own life and the wounds you've experienced, I think you can fit them in one of those six categories. 
Okay, why is this important? This is important because, yeah, question. Yeah. Yes. You will never be 100% woundless as long as there are other people in the world. <laughs> and as long as you're breathing. <laughs> because not only do other people hurt us because we live in a fallen world. Look, <clears throat> this is the great tragedy of parenthood. Are you a parent? No? It's okay. The great tragedy of parenthood is you're so deeply aware of how much you're hurting and harming your kids because of your own fallen human nature. Only if I'm what? Only if you're yeah, only if you're a two. Yeah, it doesn't mean I'm not hurting them. So even if I'm unaware that I'm hurting them, I'm still hurting them by failing to provide these things for them. Right? And by the way, being misattuned or unattuned to kids is in itself a wound. So, so there's something in, in um, human development, the psychology of human development called attachment. This is really big. It, it, for those of you that are going to be mothers, <clears throat> um, this got really popular in some Catholic mom circles a while back, attachment parenting, right? And so all these, these ladies were like, we do attachment parenting. And what they meant was like they wear their baby all the time and they're like constantly touching their baby and co-sleeping with it. If you want to co-sleep with your baby, co-sleep with your baby. I don't care, right? If you want, like, but that's not what attachment actually is. Attachment means being attuned to the needs of your child and responding in a consistent and empathic way. Attachment means seeing what they actually need and saying, I hear you, I see you. You have a voice that I, that I, you have a voice that resonates with me. And I respond consistently and empathically. And true attachment communicates safety, felt safety. And so even being misattuned to a child, right? You were meant to be, to have somebody want to know know you deeply, to be attuned to you. And so I think that harms their sense of connection. This is where I would put attachment. So the misattuned parent still wounds their child because they're not seeing them as they were meant to be seen, not connecting with them on the level they were meant to be connected with on. But yet we're always, this side of heaven, y'all, we're going to be hurt. We're going to be hurt. Yeah, but here's the beautiful thing, I think. As we begin the journey of healing, what happens is we start. It's like hopping in a river. We start. You hop in the river, take a couple paddles, but in the healing journey, grace takes over. God's grace begins to take over, and it doesn't feel like you're fighting upstream. It doesn't feel like you're swimming upstream. God's healing grace begins. There's work to be done early on that's hard. We're gonna, I'm going to lay out six steps for you, and they're brutal. They're like a healing boot camp. And they will, <laughs> they're going to open you up to like the deepest level of your being. But from that place, God's grace can enter, take over, 
And from that point on, the healing journey becomes much easier. It's not, look, it's not, um, I'm not saying there won't be suffering, but the suffering feels really different when we plug back into God's grace the way I'm gonna talk about. Here's what I think most of our problems are. I think most of our problems arise because of self-preservation. We get hurt, we get wounded. Somebody hurts us. They bully us, our parents get divorced. I worked with a client who, I worked with a, a client who was a young man, had a father who was a raging alcoholic, terrible alcoholic. And the father would constantly fail to pay bills, wouldn't um, pay utility bills, wouldn't pay the mortgage. And so this young boy would come home some days and there'd be a foreclosure sign on the house, which is incredibly distressing. We want shelter. We want to know we're going to have a roof over our head. And imagine being an eight or nine little, an eight or nine year old little boy and coming home and seeing a sign that says, this house will be put up for sheriff's auction in 30 days. And this father was such a raging alcoholic that he wouldn't pay, pay the utility bills and the lights would be shut off and the, they would have no phone service. And so when this little boy wanted to play with his friends, he'd have to walk to the grocery store and use a payphone, borrow a quarter and use a payphone. There was no financial security, none. They never knew if they'd have enough money, if the lights would be on, if the, if, if the bills would be paid. So this young boy made a vow to himself. He made a promise. And he said, I will never feel financial insecurity again. And so he went on to a prestigious Ivy League undergraduate education. He went on to a prestigious law school, Ivy League law school. He became a very competent uh, attorney and, and ultimately rose to um, he actually switched over into the financial industry and became a high-ranking executive at a Manhattan bank and then left that position for a, a partnership at a very prominent Manhattan law firm. Makes, he's a multimillionaire. And he is the most anxious, financially anxious, depressed, individual that I've met in a while. But if you look at him, if you look at his, his work ethic, where he went to school, how everything is driven by self-preservation. He made a promise to himself that I won't ever feel like we don't have enough money again. And so he has worked tirelessly to take care of his own needs. He's worked tirelessly to take care of his own needs. The problem though, this is the problem. This is where we're the problem. Because when we get hurt, we say to ourselves, okay, I'll tend to my own wounds. I'll tend to my own hurts. I'll make sure I never feel that pain again. And so guess what happened, Mr. Mink? What happened the first time that he went up for partner and he was denied partner? The crushing, gripping anger and fear because he needed this job. Don't you see? I need to be partner so that I can ensure that I will always have enough money. And when they said, oh, it's not your time, yeah, not, not this time. 
the anger and the resentment that arose. When a pipe breaks at the house, it's a Greek tragedy. Because don't you, I need, I need this money to feel safe. This is how I provide for my own sense of security and safety. When a pipe breaks at the Bruninger house, I teach at Franciscan University, okay? I am poor. <laughs> In the spirit of St. Francis, they pay us very little. <laughs> oh. When a pipe breaks at our house, it's an inconvenience, right? Probably have to put it on a credit card. But you know why I don't feel the grip? Now, I have significantly less money than this gentleman. Why am I much less anxious than he is? Because for me, I'm not out trying through self-preservation to shore up my own security financially. That's not my wound. I've got my wounds. We'll talk about those later. Right? That's not my wound. His wound is around finances. And so for him, anything that potentially hurts, touches, harms, he has to keep his world tight and together he can't have any debt because debt is dangerous. He has to have the best jobs. Because if you don't, this individual thinks that if he isn't the best at whatever he's doing, then he's at risk of being fired. And why is that terrifying to him? Because if he gets fired, he won't have enough money. So he works harder than anybody I know personally. This is the guy who's up at five o'clock He's at work by 6.30. He works till 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night. Works Saturday and Sunday. Does he love working? Does anyone love the law that much? <laughs> no. He doesn't love working. You know what he's doing? Self-preservation. He's keeping, he's trying to keep himself safe. He doesn't want to feel the wound. And we do this all the time. We do this with... being the center of attention, right? If we have a wound around, I'm not good enough, people don't like me, sometimes what we'll do for, to self-preserve, to keep ourselves safe, we say to ourselves, I'll show you how valuable I am. And we work really hard on being the center of attention, showing everybody how great we are. I don't mean to brag, guys, but <clears throat> God, I just got a 96 on my physics test. How'd you do? No, sorry, yeah, no, how'd you do? Oh, 80, I'm so, wow. I'm sorry, you'll do better next time, right? The person who's always constantly kind of showing how great they are, how valuable they are, how self-preservation. The problem with self-preservation is that it sets us up to be hurt again in the future. Self-preservation sets us up to be hurt again in the future. When we're guarding against our own wounds, we put ourselves in positions to be hurt by others. So, one of my wounds, one of, or one of my self-preservation strategies that comes out of a wound, I want to feel respected, particularly by people in authority. Right? And so, Scott Hahn. Let's go back to Scott Hahn, hypothetically. Right? Let's go back to Scott Hahn. Why, did, why does, actually this is, this was true. Why did I feel so anxious going to mass every Sunday with my family? I felt so anxious going to Mass because here are people in authority. 
people at my university who are prominent, who are well-respected, who are, and I need you to like me. I need to get you to like me. Because if I get you to like me, I'll feel safe, I'll feel secure. It won't touch that wound of mine that I'm not good enough. And so self-preservation. See, when I'm at work, I can do self-preservation really well. I walk up, I pick a topic that you're interested in, right? I see Scott Hans wearing a, um, a Pittsburgh Steelers hat. I'm like, Scott, man, how about those Steelers this weekend, huh? Golly, really put a hurting on uh, you know, Cleveland. What a game, yeah, right? Oh, did you just put a new book out? Gosh, I really loved your last book, man, right? I'll get to know him, I'll cozy up next to him. Self-preservation, I need to feel respected and liked by people in authority over me because of my wounds. So at work, I can do this. But it's much harder to do it with six kids, right? Because those, those little, <laughs> we're in a church, right? Those little guys, right? They just never seem to quite act and behave the way I need them to act and behave to impress the people I want to impress, right? So my 14-year-old sitting there at mass, right? He's, he's 14. He's just sitting there picking his cuticles, right? I'm like, buddy, it's the consecration. Come on. Scott Hahn is behind us. Scott Hahn wrote a book called The Lamb's Supper. You know what he loves? The Eucharist. You know what you're doing? Embarrassing me. So I go, buddy, you're not going to play video games when we get home if you can't pay attention. And he's like, so now I'm harming my relationship with my kid, right? Because, by the way, why am I correcting him? Am I correcting him because I love him so much and I want what's good for him? No, I'm correcting him out of fear that if he doesn't look the way I want him to look, people who I respect won't respect me. Right? because of my wounds. And then I go back into work on Monday. <clears throat> I go up to Scott. I'm like, hey, Scott, how about those Steelers, man? And he totally ignores me. He's busy. He walks by. He goes, oh, hey, Matt, right? Walks by. And I go, oh, no, he doesn't like me. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I got What can I talk to him about that I like? What could he... Oh, gosh. Um... Oh, oh. He lives on the block from me. They just did like a renovation on the house. Scott, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I really love that new renovation you guys did on the house, man. It looks great. And he's like, oh, Matt, I'm <clears throat> sorry. I have to uh, go to, to class. I'm, yeah, I'll see you later. And I feel like he dismisses me. And now I go home to my wife. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. Why am I hurt or wounded? Because Scott Hahn didn't give me the attention I wanted, right? So I go home to my wife. Now I start bad-mouthing him, right? Babe, can you believe that Scott Hahn guy? I tried to talk to him in the hall. He's not a nice man, right? I need just say, this is being recorded. Scott, you're a wonderful man. <laughs> I'm going, babe, he's not a nice guy, right? He is not, man, look at, he's just so full of himself. And so now I'm, I'm bad-mouthing him, right? But here's the question. If I had walked into that situation not trying to engage in self-preservation and, and get people to like me, but if I had walked in that situation freely, not acting out of a wound. No matter how Scott Hahn reacts to me, I'm okay. The problem is when I act from a place of self or self-seeking or selfishness or self-preservation, I put myself in a position to be hurt by others. Right? I put myself in a position to be hurt by others. When we act out of self, right? ego, another way we could say this is ego. 
When we act out of ego, we put ourselves in a position to be hurt or harmed by others. But ego is a funny thing, right? Because sometimes when I act out of ego, it's not always like, look at how great I am. Sometimes ego looks the other way, right? Where I, it's like a false, no, please, no, I couldn't, please, please, no, don't choose me, don't choose me, right? And then they don't choose you, and you go, how dare they didn't pick me? I was the best candidate, right? Well, they saw how demure and quiet you were acting, and they looked at, like, we set ourselves up to be hurt and harmed. This is how we're the problem. When we act out of self-preservation, we set ourselves up to be harmed. Okay. Am I going to go over this? No, we'll cover this in Q&A. We'll cover that in Q&A. These are our problems. These are all various forms of self and selfishness and self-preservation. Jealousy, envy, laziness, procrastination, insincerity, excessive negative thinking, lust, perfectionism, criticism, gossip, greed, self-condemnation, self-importance, self-pity, lying, hate, false pride, resentments, worry. These are the problems in our life. And I want you, I want, look, you guys are riddled with these. If you're sitting here going, oh, look at that list. I don't actually identify very much with those. No, not me. <laughs> okay. You're riddled with these, right? And the key to healing is identifying how much we're riddled with those. The subtle ways that we allow self-importance to creep into our relationships. And then when somebody doesn't acknowledge how important we really are, I get hurt. How dare so I'll have students sometimes, um, student will say, uh, like, we'll be walking down the hall, and the student will be like, oh, hey, hey, what's up, man? And I'm like, what's up, man? It's Dr. Dr. Bruninger to you, young man, right? If I'm, let's say self-importance is my defective character, the thing I really struggle with, when a, when a student says, hey, what's up, man? I feel hurt. I've set myself up through, through my own self-importance to feel hurt by others when they don't give me the respect I think I deserve. Impatience, right? With kids, this one's so prominent. Right? It's so prominent. But even like um, road rage or you know, things like this. Road rage is partially about self-importance though too. What's the first thing you think? I was in the car, this is, just so you know who I am, like I'm not pretending to be, like I was in the car, I don't know, a year ago, driving back with the kids. We're coming back up from Texas and somebody cut me off, right? And you know what my first thought was? Like who do you think you are? Like how dare you cut me off? And you know what my first behavior was that followed that? It's the middle finger out the window, right? My wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Kids were like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm waving, son, I'm waving. I'm waving, right? Why do I get so angry when somebody cuts me off? What is road rage about? Self-importance. It's about ego. It's about me. How dare you cut me off? I'm like, why shouldn't they cut you off? Who are you, right? By the way, you know what I do, too? I leave the house at the last possible minute leaving no time to have any inconvenience. And then when life happens, I go, look at this, How, this is ridiculous. How could, if you'd only learn to drive, 
well, what if I had left the house 10 minutes early? Didn't I actually set myself up because of my laziness and procrastination to feel angry on the road? If I left 15 minutes earlier and somebody cut me off, I'd be fine. I leave actually five minutes late, speeding, they cut me off and I'm filled with rage. Who's the pro is the problem the old lady or is the problem me? Because I'll justify all day. Well, that's ridiculous. She shouldn't have made a left-hand turn in it, right? I get all self-justification-y. The problem wasn't the old lady. The problem was I was procrastinating. I didn't leave the house until after I should have, and I set the world up to disappoint me and make me angry. Does this make sense? What happens most of the time when I feel hurt is I've set the world up to hurt me. I've set the world up to hurt me. And what I want to do in healing is I want to identify all the ways that I constantly set the world up to hurt me. Okay? Two types of healing. First, let's give a definition of healing. What is healing? Healing is having the freedom to love the way God created us to love. That's, what, that's when you can say you're healed. You've been healed when you can love the way God created you to be loved. I think there's two types of healing. There's the type of healing where God removes our wounds. He removes those difficult and traumatic images. He takes away the bad feelings and the distressing feelings. That's like a healing from removal. He removes those, those difficult, painful, and bad feelings, thoughts, etc. And that happens. That happens. It absolutely can happen. But there's another type of healing too. And St. Paul is the model of this. You guys remember that story of St. Paul? St. Paul says, I had a thorn in my side. You guys ever have a thorn? You guys, so I live in a, uh, our backyard, we have a hawthorn tree. And the story about the hawthorn tree is that it's the tree that they use to make the crown of thorns for Christ, these big cranking thorns. And my kids step on them regularly. And it is like, it's like watching a hot sword be stuck into the, I mean, they just scream. And it's given a total new meaning to its sword in, in, my, in my flesh. So now I feel like I know what St. Paul's talking about. He's got a thorn in his flesh. Painful. Painful. And so we ask the Lord to remove it. Lord, take away this pain. And does the Lord, does the Lord heal St. Paul? What's the Lord, does it, no. This is St. Paul, by the way, right? This isn't like, um, St. Paul saw the risen Christ. He knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. He sees the risen Christ. He's counted as one of, this is the most like, St. Paul is so radical. He's such, I mean, he's imprisoned for Christ. He's chained, he's shipwrecked. He's, and he is a holy man. He says, Lord, take this away. Doesn't do it. So he asks the second time, Lord, Take this thorn away. Doesn't do it. Third time. This, again, this isn't some schlep. This isn't, <laughs> right? This is St. Paul. Lord, take it away. No. So did the Lord leave St. Paul unhealed? I don't think so. I actually think, I think, that St. Paul was in fact healed. Because 
Most of us have thorns, right? Our thorns, I'm not good enough. Think about all those statements you can do. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not valuable. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm fat. We have all these thorns, these painful thoughts and memories, feelings. And what we do is we spend most of our life trying to orchestrate life so that it doesn't touch our thorn. I can't go there because that's going to touch my thorn. Oh, yeah, I really would have loved to be an English lit major, but I feel like I'm not great at reading and I don't want somebody to call me out on that. And, uh, would have touched that thorn. Or you really want to ask a girl out on a date, but she might say no, and you already don't feel good enough. And so that might touch that thorn of rejection, so I'm not going to ask her out. We orchestrate our lives to avoid having our thorns touched. And so because we do that, we can't go where the Lord is calling us, because that might touch our thorn. Sometimes we'll take the long way. Like, the Lord's calling me over there, so I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm coming, Lord. It's going to go this way, because <laughs> that way hurts. And sometimes we go in a totally different direction, because where the Lord is calling us will hurt. But here's why I think St. Paul was healed. St. Paul was healed precisely because he was given the freedom to go wherever the Lord called him, despite the thorn in his flesh. That is a real healing. When you don't have to orchestrate your life or avoid situations out of fear that it will touch your thorn, that is a healing. You're free. I'm not free when I have to avoid having my thorn touched. I am free when I can go exactly where the Lord calls me and bring my suffering with me. And this is what St. Paul does. And there's debate, right? There's debate over what that thorn in the flesh is. Some theologians think it might be lust or... Right? Imagine, let's say hypothetically that it was lust. St. Paul struggled terribly with lust. And the Lord says, hey, buddy, we're going to Rome. I'm calling you to Rome, son. I'm filled with pagan prostitutes. Paul's like, ah, can't go there, Lord. Got my lust thorn here, right? I'll go somewhere else. I'll go somewhere else. I'll stay right up. What if I just stay here in Jerusalem, right? On these, these moderate Jewish women. I'll just stay here, right? Lord says, no, you're called to Rome. He goes, no, I can't go to Rome. It's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. That's not what St. Paul says. The Lord says, we're going to Rome. And he says, absolutely. He brings it with him. He's free. He's free. This is what I think healing is. Sometimes the Lord removes our pain and suffering totally, and it happens. Our insecurities disappear. Our fears disappear sadness, our anxiety disappears, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he allows the fear and the insecurity and the anxiety to remain, but we're given the freedom to follow his voice and his call regardless, despite it. Okay, we're going to go through six steps to healing really quick, and then we're going to do Q&A. Step one, the first step I think in healing is you have to admit that you have a problem. You have to you have to humbly admit that there's an issue. We have to stop playing pretend. We have to say, you know what? I am incredibly insecure. I don't feel like I know who I am. I don't feel like I have it all together. I'm not nearly as confident as I project. I feel 
to this, to that, to, right? We have to surrender every area of our life. See, the problem with most of us is we give Jesus, we give the Lord the parts of our life that we're sort of okay with. I'll say, like, Lord, you know what? You can have this part of my life. You can have that part of my life. You can, I'm going to hold on to this, right? You can have these parts. Step one is we surrender everything, everything. And we say, Lord, I'm yours. Any aspect of my life, I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I have wounds for my parents. It is not hard. You could have great parents, and it is not hard to rattle off 10 wounds like that with great parents, right? And most of us have, like, mediocre parents. You know what I mean? Like, I know my parents love me. And I could, I, the wounds are, right, they're there because they're imperfect people. And they're wounded, and they act from their own wounds. I have to acknowledge it. Despite how successful I am, look, I'm a doctor. I have a doctorate in psychology, by the way. I thought psychologists weren't supposed to be wounded. I thought we were supposed to kind of like have the market on health and healing. and right? We have to surrender everything to the Lord and admit that we are hurting and broken and in pain. Okay, that's step one. By the way, this scripture passage, those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. We have these parts of our lives that we keep separate. And what I'm asking you to do is surrender everything to Christ. All of it. Your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your kids, if you have kids, your relationship with your friends, your, um, your sexuality, your sense of meaning and purpose, your identity, all of it. Surrender it all. But this line, because apart from me you can do nothing, that is like... Sometimes we want to think like, Jesus was kidding, right? That's strong words from the Son of God. <laughs> when we act, when we don't give him the entirety of our life. Like, I'll tell you a part of my life that I've not let the Lord into. <clears throat> is my health. So, my doctor told me like two years ago, um, I went to get like a, just some blood work done. And he's like, your cholesterol's 258. He's like, that's incredibly high. <laughs> I don't know, you guys, that's very high. Um, he's like, you need, you need diet and exercise. He's like, do you exercise? Um, I said, no, no, I don't exercise. He's like, well, like, what kind of foods do you eat? Like, do you, what's your diet like? I'm like, I have a pretty good diet. I mean, I have a pretty good diet. I'm not, like, well, again, like, how, why are these numbers so high? And I was like, well, I have a bowl of ice cream every night. Every night. We went to this restaurant last night, and the, the ice cream portions at nice places are like this. It was literally, I mean, you, the ice, two scoops of ice cream. One was like that, the other was, I mean, they're that big, right? That is a spoonful of ice cream, okay? I eat ice cream by the half gallon. I have six children, and at the end of the night, I need a break. Dad needs me time, and I need joy. You know what I mean? Like, I've just put a two-year-old in bed. We have a 10-week-old that's, like, still up. We've got a five-year-old that's, like, my five-year-old is so adorable. He talks so much. He's so adorable, but he's a talker. 
And then the 14-year-old is like coming into himself and he needs like, I have to teach him to shave and sh like how to shower again, <laughs> like regularly. I asked him the other day, I said, Asher, when was the last time you showered? And his response was, I don't know. <laughs> like, that's horrifying, son. Get in the shower, right? By 9.30 at night, it feels like such a feat of life to like have everyone in bed that I need some joy. So I go down and get, every night, I get ice cream, every night. And I've done this for the past, I don't know, five and a half, six years, every night. And sometimes I'll melt marshmallow on top. I'm not kidding, I'll take like melted marshmallow, put it on top, crush graham, I'll do like a s'mores, I'll make my own s'mores sundae. So yeah, I don't know why my cholesterol is so high, doctor. I, life's a mystery, right? Who knows how science works? Okay. My cholesterol is still, like, you know what I haven't done, guys? I haven't given that part of myself to the Lord. You know why? Because this sounds so ridiculous. But I think, I think to myself, what, but what happiness will I be have if I, if I give up my ice cream? I don't want to give it up. And that sounds small and it sounds absurd, but we all have areas of our life like that. Some bigger, some smaller, but parts of our life that we keep to ourselves. No, Lord, I'll keep that. So, you know, you come to Mass on Sunday. You guys are like the Catholics of UT, right? You come to Mass on Sundays. And you're doing better than most of the guys who are out here. Right? Like, you're here tonight, right? This is Friday night in UT, right before Halloween. It's crazy out there right now, right? You guys know that. It's nuts. And so you guys are doing pretty good. And so you can feel pretty, like, self-righteous, right? Not out there dressed... <laughs> in a Mario costume, right? Drinking Jaeger bombs. Like, you're doing good. But what are the areas of your life that you still aren't giving to the Lord? Maybe it is your drinking. Maybe it is your, um, how you relate to men or women. Maybe it's how you think about school. Maybe it's your relationship with your parents. We need to give them everything. Or else we dissipate our ability to do anything. Okay, step one. So turning it all over. Step two. We need to, most of us need to reevaluate our image of God, how we think about God. If I ask you guys, real quick, describe God to me. Just go. Spitball. Love. Power. Father. Shepherd. Good shepherd. Good shepherd. Yeah. Peacemaker. Unconditional love. King. Keep going. There's more. Mercy. Master. Oh, yeah, we're getting close there. Now we're getting a little closer. Yeah, yeah. Slipped out, right? Yeah, okay. Most of us say, when you ask students at Franciscan, they're like, good, good father, heavenly king, merciful, right, good shepherd. You all know the right answers. You all absolutely know the right answers. If I could crack your chest open and look at your hearts, we start to think something much more like master, taskmaster. Rule maker, judge. judge. We're like, God, just, he's just love, y'all. But like inside, I'm panicked that he's got his finger on the smite button waiting to freaking get me. Like, you know what I mean? That's, so the answer up here very often is different than how we experience him. In psychology, we call this the, the difference between God image and God attachment. God image is how, what you know about God, what you've learned about God. 
And you all have the right God image. Congratulations, right? You all give the right answers. God attachment is how you feel about God. Does he give you a feeling of safety and security? Or do you have an anxious attachment? When I think about God, in times of threat or distress, do I turn to God and feel like, so the other night, my two-and-a-half-year-old cries out in the middle of the night. She's had a dream about a monster, right? And I came in the room, and I said, hey, baby, I'm right here. She said, she's crying out, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I come in the room, and I said, hey, baby, I'm right here. You're okay. And she said, oh, daddy. Right? I'm freaking bigger than monsters in her mind, <laughs> right? And then she said, Daddy, come here, lay down. And she pulled the covers back, right? When, when I am around her and she feels afraid or scared or she turns to me, she looks at me and she feels safe. And she even feels safe enough to lose her mind in front of me. Like that is a form of safety and security. She feels safe enough to be herself in a moment. When Lucia's angry, she allows me to see that. It's actually a sign of insecurity in a relationship to hide how we're feeling. And we learn this from our parents, right? Unfortunately, my dad, my dad is one of the, my dad is a tough man. He's a big, tough man from inner city Philadelphia. And like, we were at a baseball game. He's probably, I don't know, he's 60 years old now, right? We're at a baseball game over the summer. Bunch of college, 15 college kids, drunk, yelling inappropriate things, and I've got the kids. And my dad looks at me and he goes, let's go. And I was like, no, dad, I'm just going to ask them to knock it off. And he said, I can't, I can't say what he said. We are in a church. But he, he intimated to me that, if they responded in any way other than with like, yes, okay, I'll be quiet, that like, that the force of hell would be unleashed on them. I mean, that's what he said to me, but he used a whole bunch of words that people from inner city Philadelphia use, right? Okay, you get it. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and luckily they were like, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. And I wanted to say, you're so lucky. Like, you're so lucky you responded that way, guys, because Mick Bruninger was... You're going to unleash the hounds of hell on you. So my dad was not great with emotion, particularly anger. So when I felt angry, if I started to raise my voice, my dad had this way of saying, Matt, enough. And when my dad said, Matt, enough, you stopped. You stopped. Like you don't, when Mick Bruninger says enough, you don't, there's not like one more like, yeah, but it's like you just stop, right? And so what I learned was that anger was not an okay emotion to show. So when I felt angry, I had to just like squelch it, crush it. I didn't feel safe and secure expressing anger in my relationship with my father. The difference between my dad and Lucia is, and my dad and my kids, is I try to communicate to them that I, I'm big enough to hold all of you. You can be angry. It's okay. I can handle it. I'm a grown, big, mature adult. I can handle it. I try not to communicate that that's not okay here. Now, it is my job to help them figure out how to handle those feelings and deal with them in healthy ways and regulate their emotions. 
But the problem with most of us is we hide ourselves from God because we think that he doesn't want certain parts of ourselves. And we learn that from our parents. Very often, our attachment to God images our attachment to our parents. We tend to view God the way we view our parents. Here. And so in times of threat or distress, when you feel anxious or nervous or scared, if you wouldn't go to your parents, you usually don't go to God. At least not genuinely. You'll go to him with something like, hey, Lord, yeah, um, I'm just feeling a little nervous. Okay, thanks for your help, right? Because you, you notice what you're supposed to say, but you don't crack open your chest to him in security. You don't feel safe. And so what we need to do, most of us, is we need to break down how we feel about God. We need to get honest with it. And here's what I think we should do. Here's how I think we start to rebuild an honest relationship with God. The first thing we do is we think about the characteristics, the traits that we most need God to have for us right now. Not the ones that you know he's supposed to have. What are the ones that you, you need him to have? You know what Lucia knows about me? She knows dad has what I need. So what do you need from, from God the Father? What do you need God the Father to have? Is it mercy? Is it forgiveness? What is the characteristic or traits that you need him to have? And I want you to start there. And just begin to praying, begin praying to God from that place, just under those characteristics. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. What do I need to hear God say to me? What do I need to hear God say to me? So I was, I was doing this a couple months ago. Because I do this thing, right? I oftentimes feel like my life is, a, is performance, right? Teaching can feel a little bit like performance. And so all day long I'm teaching, I feel, right? Okay. But I realized my relationship with God felt like performance. He was one more person that I had to impress to make sure I got tenure, kept people's respect, blah, 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 blah. And so I was praying with this, and I, I, I said, what do I need to hear God say? And the answer was, you don't have to perform for me. And I realized that for the past few months, my relationship with God had been a performance. Well, what does a good Catholic do in prayer? I pray the rosary. Not that the rosary is bad, right? If you want to pray the rosary, pray the rosary. But I was praying the rosary because I thought that's what good Catholics do. It wasn't out of love. It wasn't out of a deep desire to connect with the Blessed Mother. It was a performance. And I think most of us are not in an authentic relationship with God. And we need to start fresh. We need to start anew. And God can handle you saying, God, I just need you to be mercy right now. I just need to get to know you as merciful. I need to hear you say to me that I'm enough or that I'm lovable or that I don't need to perform. But I, need you, I want you guys to start praying and building up an authentic relationship with God as, he, as you need him to be. And I have utter confidence, I know that might sound crazy and heretical, but I have utter confidence that from that place, as you get to know the Lord, he will reveal himself to you and he will bring you along the path of the truth that he is. But most of your relationship with God right now, I think, is actually not with a God as he is. 
It's with God as your parents are. It's with God as your friends are. It's with God as, it's not with God as God is. Okay, second step. We need to, because look, you're not going to crack open your chest in these next four steps and reveal your deepest, darkest wounds if you think God is a master up there and you're the slave. You know how many slaves were honest with their masters? I could really use a drink right now. Super thirsty here in the field, right? Like, nobody cares, right? I'm not going to crack open my chest and identify my wounds to a God who is not merciful, who isn't loving, who isn't tender, to a God who's going to look at me and say, you're pathetic. I need better than that. I need to know God as God is if I'm going to have the confidence to continue with the rest of the steps. Okay, step three. Here's where we go back to the beginning. We go back to the beginning, and we start with our earliest memories, and we look at all of our wounds. And I lay, I lay out the exact process of this in my book, which will be out in December, and so you can buy it and work your way through it as a book study. Um, <laughs> But what we do is we go back, we go back to the beginning and we identify all of our wounds, any wound we can remember, and we see what part of us it hurt. Did it harm my self-esteem, my sense of connection, my desire for shelter or food or love? Or... And then we try to identify the defect of character that's arisen, right? the self-preservation strategy that we've adopted to try to keep ourselves safe from that wound, to try to protect ourselves from that wound. And we go through our life meticulously and painstakingly trying to identify our part in everything that has happened. What is your part? What is your part? So let me give an example of, of how something like this works. So when I was four years old, my biological father left, right? He left. And I had this belief, this false belief. Now that's painful. When a, when, a, when a parent leaves, it's painful. But I adopted this false belief that I wasn't lovable enough to keep him around and that if I haven't had a father, then I won't be able to be a father. And so for years, my anger at him like, burned really strongly, really, really strongly until I went through these steps. And what I realized was I was deepening and adding to my own suffering and pain. My part, the part of, of my part in this was that I was lying to my, I told myself a lie. And it was a lie that deepened my pain and it kept it in place. It, it, it reified it, it concretized it. Because as long as I believe that I can't be a good father unless I've had a good father, then I'm going to be angry at him for the rest of my life because he left. I'm stuck. My part is that I lied to myself. I had to look at each of my hurts and my wounds and say, what did I bring to the table? Because once I acknowledge that, wait, I'm lying to myself. That's not true. You can have a good father. You can be a good father and not have had a good father. It's also not true that I wasn't lovable enough to keep him around. That was a lie I told myself. And once I realized that those were lies I was telling myself, that's my part in this pain. It's the part of the, it's the, part of the pain that I'm adding 
and I ask God to remove this, all of a sudden that wound can begin to heal. But so long as I keep that pain and that, that lie in place, that wound doesn't heal. The wound doesn't heal. So I go through my life and I look for my part in everything. Everything. And I share this with another human being. So here's what we do. We go through our life, we identify our character defects. I'm riddled with self-importance. I'm riddled with lying to myself, lying to others, self-justification, resentment, fear. Fear is pernicious. We act out of fear so often. And when I act out of fear, I set myself up to be hurt and to be angry and to be anxious because if you don't do exactly what I need, I'm not going to be okay. So I look for my part in all of this and I admit it to somebody. You know what this is like? This is like a big general confession. You look at all of the ways that you've been selfish and self-seeking and egotistical and dishonest and you admit it to somebody. From the beginning of your life to where you are now, a big confessional dump, right? Get it all off your chest. And then what you do is where you've acknowledged that you've, been a, you've had to part to play in a relationship, uh, in, a, in a wound, sorry, or in pain, where you've acknowledged your part, you go back and you make it right. So step five is you have to try to repair any injury or wrong you've done to other people. Now look, let's say, let's say my biological father is 98% at fault. He's 98% at fault. I'm 2% at fault. I have to own 100% of my 2%. That's what this step is about. This step is about owning my junk, my garbage. It's about keeping my side of the street clean. I've acknowledged now, through step four, I've acknowledged all the junk in my life. I've taken an honest look at my life. Inventory. What's in stock? Here's what Matt Bruinger's made of. And then I have to own it as my own. Even if, I, if I'm 1% wrong, if you're 99% wrong, I'm gonna make amends for my 1%. I'm gonna own it all. Why? Because healing, right, is about being able to hold my head high and freely go wherever the Lord is calling me. To know that I've done whatever I need to do to make right the wrongs of my past. I can hold my head high before any man because I know that I've done whatever needs to be done to atone for the things I've done. No matter how big, how small. I did that backwards. How big, how small. Right? I've done whatever needs to be done. So if I stole five bucks from somebody in high school, right? you know, my friend, right? he's got five, I borrowed five bucks, I didn't tell him. And I think to myself, well, I borrowed it. But yeah, he's borrowed from me. But we're probably even, right? You know the way we justify these things. I'm wrong. I stole. I call him back up 15 years later. And I say, hey, man, I stole five bucks from you once on a Friday night. You didn't know it. I owe you $5. The check's in the mail. Like, whatever I have to do. I remembered um, one time I, uh, I vandalized some property. I think the statute of limitation has passed now, so I think we're good. But I vandalized some property. And I forgot that I did it, right? 
And like 15 years later, I remembered. And so I called the place up and I said, hey, look, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I vandalized some property. I'd like to know how much the sign costs so that I can, I can pay you for it. And the guy was like, well, I'm, we got a new set. We got a metal sign. I, we don't even have that wooden sign anymore. Probably because idiots like me kept vandalizing it, right? We got a new sign. Don't worry about it. And I was like, well, look, no, I, can you estimate how much this sign might have cost? I'd like to mail you a check for, for that. And you can use it however you want. Right? It was a Boy Scout camp. You can use it however you want. I make right the wrongs of my past so that I can hold my head high before anybody. Last step, and this is what, I'm gonna wrap up with this. I'm gonna wrap, because I talk a lot. I come from a, a group of Irish women who just talk. They talk, they're talkers. My people are talkers. I wanna say this. This, this is ultimately about conversion. It's about radical conversion. It's about taking the parts of our heart that are still stuck on keeping ourselves safe, doing what we want to do, and it's about recognizing them and turning those parts of ourselves to God, to Christ. And in step six, we adopt a new disposition. We wake up every day and we say this, God, I'm totally yours today. Do whatever you want with me. I will go anywhere, I will do anything, I will say anything, but give me what I need to do that. And so if you need to have your fear of not being good enough removed, then God will take it. If that's what's blocking you from being of service to him, he'll take it. If your fear of not being lovable, of being right, to whatever, your insecurities, your self-righteousness, your false pride, whatever is blocking you from being of service to him, he will remove so long as you are ready and willing to do whatever he asks. And so this is the exchange I make every morning. I was driving down here tonight, right? And I called my wife and um, I was like, I don't know, babe. my, my in-laws are from this area and they were going to come down and listen to this. And I was like, ah, babe, I'm feeling a little nervous. Like, I don't want your mom and dad here. I'd like my in-laws to like me. I don't want them to hear this. And she's like, don't feel nervous. She's like, Matt, it's not about you. It's about carrying God's message. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually the topic of my talk. Right. Oh, yeah, babe, that's what the whole book's about. That's what, yeah, right. It's not about me. When I walk into this situation thinking, I want you guys to like me. I want my in-laws to like me. I want to be impressive. I want to be, when it's about me, then all of a sudden when somebody's not paying attention, I'm going, oh God, what? maybe they don't like me. Maybe I'm not doing good enough. Maybe I'm not, maybe this is, right? I start to get anxious. I start to get fearful. I start to get resentful. I start to get angry. When it's about me, you guys never act the way I need you to act. Somebody stands up and I'm like, oh, am I not, oh, not exciting enough to keep you in your seat, right? How dare you, right? When it's about me, the world makes me feel anxious, angry, and depressed. But my wife reminded me, it's not about you, Matt. You have one simple task, to carry whatever message God wants you to carry tonight. And then when that's the purpose, when I walk in here with that intention, I don't feel anxious. I don't feel angry when, if somebody stood up and left, if, if 15 of you stood up and left, I would carry the message to the two of you that stayed. It's fine, because it's not about me. 
most of our hurts, most of our wounds, most of our um, anxiety, our worry, our sadness our, is caused because we're starting each day thinking about ourselves and what we want and how we want it and what we need. And we're not starting today saying, God, I'm yours. I'll do anything. I'll say anything. I'll go anywhere. My sole purpose is to carry your love, your patience, your kindness to others. That's it. That's all I have to do today. And if you like me and think I'm cool, great. If you don't, great. Right? If you think I'm smart, wonderful. If you don't, I'm okay. Because my purpose isn't to impress you or make you think I'm smart. Or my purpose is to carry a simple message. And when I do what I think God wants me to do each day, I'm less anxious, I'm less irritable, I'm less discontent. It's about conversion. Here's the analogy, and then I'm really going to stop talking. The analogy is this. Any gardeners in here? Anyone garden? People don't garden in their 20s. That's right. Why would you? You're college kids. College kids don't garden. But you guys know what gardening is? Okay. okay. So a greenhouse. Imagine a greenhouse, a beautiful, clean greenhouse. And inside are these beautiful, my favorite flowers are dahlias. I love dahlias. Imagine these beautiful dahlias in there. And you've got the sunlight shining in through this clear glass, and the dahlias are thriving. Now, I want you to imagine that each one of your character defects, your fear, fear of not being good enough, fear of being too ugly, fear of being unimpressive, fear of being... Each fear you have is like black spray paint on the greenhouse. All of your self-importance, black spray paint. All of your self-pity, poor me. Oh, poor, people don't like me, poor me. Black spray paint. Right? You're lying, black spray paint. Your greed, black spray paint. Lust, black spray paint. Before you know it, the greenhouse is covered in black spray paint. And what happens to the flowers inside? They die. They shrivel up and die because the sunlight can't get through. What we're trying to do with these steps is identify the black spray paint and scrape it off. Right. Oh, I'm a liar. I actually lie to myself quite a bit. Scrape. Fear. I'm actually quite afraid. God's honest truth. I'm afraid that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not. Right? Scrape. Scrape. Right? Greed. I'm, not, right? I'm greedy. Right? Scrape. I'm dishonest. Scrape. Right? We scrape the black spray paint off, and the sunlight of the spirit shines brightly in again, and we come alive. The issue isn't that God isn't like adequately present in our life. The issue is that we're filled with so much selfishness and self-seeking and ego and defects of character that we're blocked from him. It's not that God isn't drawn close to us. It's like if I said to Kevin, give me a hug, man. Hey, man, give me a hug. And then I put like three pillows between us. Man, yeah, what a good hug. Yeah, right? He's like, Matt, I don't feel you. I'm like, no, man, I'm here. Yeah, come on. Three Tempur-Pedic pillows, big fluffy pillows, right? The problem isn't that, the problem is there's a barrier. And what we're trying to do with these steps is identify the barriers and remove them. And what's amazing is when we begin to remove these defects of character, our relationship with God takes off but life also takes on a deep and profound and significant meaning, sense of adventure, depth of purpose, 
because no longer am I out doing what I think I need to do, trying to impress people or trying to keep myself safe. Or trying to, I'm just tapping in to this power every day and saying, what do you want me to do? And watch what happens. Watch where you go. See who you meet. Watch what God asks you to do. But this is healing. It's going wherever the Lord calls you, unimpeded by yourself, self-seeking, and ego, and going on the most tremendous adventure that you've ever been on. Okay, let's, let's have some questions. I don't know how long I talked for. It could have been long. Uh, it's an hour and a half. Yeah, not bad. Let's talk about healing. Yeah. So I, I think you've definitely addressed this sort of yeah. in a general way. Yeah. Um, but I kind of wanted to go back to the Facebook picture yeah. that interested me right at the beginning. You hadn't said any of this. And so I noticed that sometimes I, I kind of classify it as like the reverse Instagram effect or the reverse Facebook effect where it's you, there's, there's the side of comparing yourself to the perfect life. Mm -hmm. But then there's the side of having other people see only your perfect parts give you, you know, a compliment or, a, or a praise, mm -hmm. and you just say, oh, five seconds ago, like, I was screaming at my kids. Like, if you only knew who I was, mm -hmm. like, this is all lies coming at me. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I don't think, I think I could approach it with this easily, but I just didn't know if you had any specific um, advice or, or just what you would have to say sort of in that specific um, help clarify for me a little more so I'm not sure I'm following okay yeah so so I heard I yell at my kids yeah. true <laughs> no it, it's the idea that that the any that any praise or compliment you're getting is is falsified because because they don't know who you really are yeah. they're they're praising someone who is not you they're praising yeah, someone yeah, yeah. who they don't understand who they didn't get to see the five seconds ago. Yeah. Do you think that, so you think that's a problem? It seems like, because it, it turns inward, and I think it has to do with, you know, your sense of self and, and whether it's about you or about someone else, like you were like step six. Yeah, um, yeah. But I just, I, it, it, it struck me there that, I mean, because it's something that I feel like someone says something and I'm like, no, that's, that's wrong. Like, yeah. that's not who I am. Like, yeah. you didn't get to see all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so here's, a, yeah, here's something about healing, if I'm tracking you, if I'm following you. Some part of healing also is being able to, um, it's being able to accept compliments and accept the complexity of sort of who I am. And so some part of healing is, so I don't just say like, you don't, oh man, if they only knew, oh, right, I'm not, that's, that's actually sort of like a self-pity, right, that's just more me, 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 me if they only knew who I really was, right? Sort of a false pride, or a false sense of humility, rather. Some part of healing is being able to say, like, oh, we did look good, like we did. Um, and man, sometimes we really do put it together. The Bruingers do put it together. And like, all in all, we have a pretty great family. And so we're not the worst. And I'm actually not the worst dad. I'm a pretty decent dad. And I'm pretty attentive, and I'm pretty... It's being able to be, you know, humility, right, is about honesty. 
Healing is about being, being humble and being able to be honest with who I am. And so it would, it would be a lie for me to be like, I'm the worst parent. If you only saw who I really was, that wouldn't be true. That's not true. I'm like a decent dad. But it, it would be equally false to say like, this is, a, look at the Bruin Drew. We got it all together. And so I think at least my experience is healing is about learning to hold that stuff um, the good and the bad in truth and to not get caught up in the stuff that I know is an exaggeration. So I'll have students say like, Dr. B, you just must be the, you're just, I saw you with your kids at mass. You're such an amazing father. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not true. That's not true. You know what I mean? But I'm a good dad. I am a good dad. And I appreciate, like, so I can say from where I'm, I think I can say, you know what? I appreciate the sentiment. And I'm a good dad. I'm a decent dad. But then I don't get caught up in the overly negative either and be like, no, I'm the worst. Right? The self-flagellation. Like, if only I was like St. Joseph. Or like, <laughs> I'm not. Right? Like, that's true. I'm not either. But I'm trying. So here's what I think it's about. It's about progress, not perfection. And being okay with that. That I'm a man making progress. I'm not terrible. I'm not great. I'm probably better than average. But learning to be honest with myself and hold the good and the bad. Because I get in trouble when I think too black and white. I'm either a great dad or a terrible dad. No, I'm like, and I do much better when I get sleep. I'm like a better dad when I get rest, right? And so like, to be honest about that, when I'm tired, I'm kind of grumpy and I can be prone to being impatient and but yeah, I think anytime we overly reflect on ourselves, overly the goal is to sort of decenter and think about ourselves less. Yeah. Mariana. We don't have a lot of time, but I think a short question that yeah. would have to do. I, I really like the way you introduced by saying that many of us, the one that have faith, come to God thinking that oh, you know, the sacrament should be fine, right? Should do. He should do the magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a lecture with Professor Pakalok on the soulmates myth about marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think that the importance of what you just said in working on ourselves and on, on healing is because even if we were to take for a second God out, the, out of the picture, I think that most of us are waiting for someone to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. At some point, there will be that special friend oh, yeah. or that special significant mm -hmm. other that will just see through all these things and mm -hmm. the way he or she will say, um, I like you. Oh, she, but no, but she really means it, mm -hmm. right? Like, so that is, is that accurate that even if we were to take God out of this, there is a work that it's only up to us. Like no one can do it for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, okay. Yes. But here's the great pro I mean, here's the problem a little bit. Yes. But also, no. In the sense that it is our work, it's the work we have to do. Nobody can do it for us. But we have this bizarre idea, and I think this is sort of like, uh, uh, America maybe breeds this in particular, but this, this sort of idea of like, we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and we do the work. Like that's what we do. This is. This is America, right? And so one psychologist who I particularly love, she's a, she, 
She does a lot of work on attachment. Um, Sue Johnson, she talked about, I mean, she, she's a legend in the field of, of psychology. She has a, a therapy she developed called Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy. And then she has an individual therapy called uh, EFIT, Emotionally Focused Individual Therapy. She's a legend. She tells a story about being in India recently. And she said, I was in India and I was having a terrible time. I was anxious, I was overwhelmed, I was panicked, I was... And she said, I needed like an attachment figure. So, so my kids have it. When my kids feel anxious or overwhelmed or scared or, you know what they do? They turn to me. And when they turn to me, they feel safe and secure. But that doesn't go away. Just because you become an adult doesn't mean you cease to need somebody to turn to. Now, it, the balance here, the tension here is we can't become like radically dependent on somebody. But Sue Johnson tells this story. Here's this woman who, I mean, she is a legend in the field. She's feeling anxious and overwhelmed, and she said, I called my husband. And he said, I hear that you, 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 honey, I can hear in your voice, you sound so worried. It's okay, you'll be home soon. I can't wait to see you. You'll be okay. And she said, I immediately felt like I was okay. And what was beautiful about that, what struck me about that was, he's an attachment figure for her. He's a figure that gives her a felt sense of safety and security. And so very often we think, well, we're not babies anymore. Babies need that. But not me. I'm an adult. I'm a grown man, son. <laughs> I don't need anybody. They're like, of course I do. And my wife, so when I'm having a hard day at work or there's something with my boss, or my, and I call my wife and she's like, hey, I love you. I'll see you soon. I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be okay. So while this is work, healing is work that I do, nobody can do it for me. It is true that it doesn't mean that I don't need others. What healing means is that, what healing really means is that I get to a place where I can actually have an authentic, loving relationship with another human being, and she can serve, my wife can serve as an attachment figure for me and help me feel safe and secure and I'm not riddled by fear, I'm not riddled by self-seeking, I'm not riddled by lust, I'm not riddled by, I don't harm our relationship through those things. I'm able to experience our relationship in a, like a mature, healthy way. But she's, a, my wife is absolutely an attachment figure. Why did I call her on the ride down here? I was feeling nervous. Why did I call her? After I called her, I felt fine. And so, while this is work that I have to do, it just sets me up to be able to have healthier relationships with others. You're always gonna have an attachment figure, always. And that's not weakness, you need one. God, you need one. And the ultimate attachment figure is God the Father, but your parents should still be attachment figures for you. Your friends can be attachment figures, your spouse will be an attachment. That's if we're healthy enough to allow them to be. Here's what happens, oftentimes, if we have wounds, it shapes the kind of people we put ourselves around. And so I have some people in my life right now, he's incredibly anxious that he's not lovable. She has an avoidant attachment style. So he, when he feels really insecure, like, like gloms onto her. And he, affirm me, tell me I'm okay, tell me you're not gonna leave me, please don't go, please don't. He becomes really, really attached. 
she pulls back. And she's like, oh, this is too much. This is, oh, God, no, no, no. And she becomes emotionally distant. I just need my space. You just have to pull back. Which makes him feel what? Even more insecure. So now he, but, but let's just stay up and talk about this. Let's just talk about it. And she's like, I need to go to bed. You're smothering me. And he goes, but we're not okay. So he pushes further forward. She draws further back. My point is, if they both worked on their wounds, they'd be able to have a secure attachment relationship. She could be a safe haven for him. He could be a safe haven for her. But their wounds are causing them to respond and react to one another in unhealthy ways. But we need others. And that's not going to go away. Yeah. Stop questioning. Yeah, say it. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you for sharing so yeah. much, not just conceptual stuff, but practical stuff. Yeah. Um, and my question was kind of going back to the two parts of healing. Mm -hmm. If it was like a process where it's step one through three is like um, removal and then step four through six is um, oh. redemptive or yeah. if there's just like an overall theme on those two. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in those, in those terms. I think it's sort of what, what my experience and the experience of people I know who have done similar things is that what I was trying to get at with that is I've met people who have gone through these steps and they've said, Matt, I, I was riddled by fear that I wasn't good enough. I was riddled by fear that I was, nobody could love me. And I went through these steps, and I turned my life over. I had this radical conversion, and that fear is gone. It's just gone. And it was related to this wound I had when my father used to say to me, God, you are just disgusting. And who could... And now that image doesn't play over and over in my head. It's just gone. It just doesn't bother me. That would be removal. Just gone. The images, the thoughts, the feelings, they're just gone. But then I've had people who say, well, I've gone through these steps and I still sometimes hear my father's voice say, you're disgusting and you're not good enough. Or I still feel anxious that people are going to leave me. So I guess I haven't been healed. I say, well, no, no, no. Despite the fact that you're afraid that people might leave you, did you go to that gathering and um, try to make friends? Despite the fact that you think people might leave you, did you go on that date with that young man who asked you out? Despite the fact that you think people might, did you feel free to go wherever the Lord called you? What I wanted to put in place was, I wanted to put in place the idea that we heal sometimes, but still feel suffering. Right? Sometimes you know, we have these garbage cans of life experiences that are really painful. And healing is like taking it from like most of us are like looking at our garbage cans and the smell and the same we're like oh this is awful we're trying to like avoid it there is a healing where you don't avoid it anymore you just just like get comfortable with it like oh yeah there's my insecurity creeping up again i'm still going to go to that party and try to meet people but there's that old voice that says you're fat no one likes you i mean i'm still going <laughs> but sometimes it creeps up we learn to be comfortable and not enslaved by our garbage. Sometimes, we, sometimes there's things we can't put down. There's deep. There, uh, the old tape plays over, the old wound, right? the old image. That's okay. Because what matters is, am I still free to go where the Lord is calling? And that's what I call the redemption wound. God buys it back. And the beauty of that, by the way, is oftentimes when God doesn't remove the wound, 
When he, when he doesn't take the, the image or the pain or the... He uses it in us to serve others. So there's this beautiful line in Alcoholics Anonymous. So these are like, imagine like these, these drunks, these heroin addicts, these crackheads. These, there's a line in there where they say, it's called the promises, the ninth set promises. It says, we will not, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will see how our experience can benefit others. All of a sudden, my hurts, my wounds, these things in my life that I thought characterized, made me, characterized me, made me terrible, become the very means of healing and grace for others. And I've seen people do this. I've seen women who smoked crack, abandoned their kids, blew crack smoke in their kid's face, right? Terrible, horrible things, images that they still have in their head. All of a sudden, those things, they use them to serve and help other women get sober. Hey, I know how you're feeling. Here's what I did. Here's, what I, here's where I've been. I felt that pain. I've done those harms. And they pull right up alongside other women and they help them get sober. Their, their thing, their wound, their pain gets redeemed. They don't forget it. The images don't go away. But the Lord takes it and uses it and makes them powerhouses. By the way, this is St. Paul. St. Paul was the greatest prosecutor, persecutor, not prosecutor. Maybe, who knows, maybe he was a great prosecutor. Persecutor of Christians. And that very thing gets redeemed. And now he's able to be this powerhouse. And so that was the point with this, is that sometimes the Lord doesn't remove it completely. But he he takes it and uses it to his own purposes. It becomes an instrument, a vehicle for healing and grace for others. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.